Chapter 6, Part 2 of What I Believe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Believe by Count Leo Tolstoy. Translated from the Russian by Konstantin Popov. Chapter 6, Part 2. After this third commandment stands a fourth reference to the Mosaic law, and then the fourth commandment is presented. Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it has been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist evil. But whoever shall strike you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue you at law, and take away your coat, let him have your cloak also. And whoever shall compel you to go a mile, go two miles with him. Give to him who asks you, and from him who would borrow from you, do not turn away. I have already spoken of the direct meaning of these words, and of our having no foundation whatever for interpreting them otherwise. The various commentaries upon them, from John Chrysostom to the present time, are truly surprising. We all admire the words, and each one tries to find some profound hidden meaning in them, but we usually fail to see that they mean exactly what they express. Ecclesiastical commentators, unmindful of the authority of him whom they acknowledge as God, unhesitatingly limit the meaning of his words. They say, It is clearly understood that the precepts of long-suffering non-retaliation, being especially directed against the vindictiveness of the Hebrews, do not exclude either the right of setting limits to the progress of evil by the punishment of evildoers, or private individual endeavours to uphold the inviolability of truth, to amend the wicked, or to deprive evil-doers of the possibility of injuring others. The divine commandments of the Saviour would otherwise be reduced to mere words, and would lead only to the progress of evil and the repression of virtue. The Christian's love should be like God's love. But since God's love limits and punishes evil only in proportion as it is more or less necessary for the glory of God or the salvation of our brethren, so it is the duty of those in authority to limit the progress of evil by punishments. Exposition of the Gospel by the Archimandrite Michael, based on the commentaries of the Fathers of the Church. Neither do learned and free-thinking Christians scruple to correct the sense of Christ's words. They affirm that his sayings are sublime but impracticable, that the application of the precept of non-resistance would destroy the whole organization of life, which we have set up so well. Such is the opinion of Renan, Strauss, and other free-thinking commentators. Yet, if we treat the words of Christ in the same way that we do the words of any man who may chance to speak to us, that is, if we suppose that he says what he means, all profound interpretations will become unnecessary. Christ says, I find that the way you have regulated your lives is both foolish and bad. I propose another way. 
and then he gives us his precepts in verses 38 to 42. Doesn't it seem right that, before correcting these words, they should at least be understood? And this is just what none of us chooses to do. We decide beforehand that the present organization of our lives, which his words tend to destroy, is the sacred law of mankind. I had not considered our way of living as either good or sacred, and therefore I came to understand this commandment before I did the others, and when I understood these words exactly in the sense in which they were uttered, I was struck by their truth, clarity, and force. Christ says, You think to destroy evil by evil. That is irrational. In order that there should be no evil, do no evil. And then, after enumerating all that is evil in our social adjustments, Christ exhorts us to act otherwise. The fourth commandment, I have said, was the one that I understood first, and it opened up to me the true meaning of all the rest. The fourth, clear, simple commandment, which it is within the power of all to obey, says, Never resist evil by violence. Never return violence for violence. If anyone strikes you, bear it. If anyone takes away what is yours, let him have it. If anyone makes you labor, do so. If anyone wants to have what you consider to be your own, give it up to him. And after this fourth commandment stands a fifth reference to the Mosaic law and the fifth commandment, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You have heard that it has been said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 to 18. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the publicans do the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the heathens do so? Therefore be perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. I had formerly considered these words as explaining, amplifying, and giving more emphasis to, even exaggerating, the doctrine of non-resistance. But having already found the simple, definite, and applicable sense of each of the preceding texts, which begin with a reference to the holy law, I had a sense that I should find some fresh meaning here also. I had observed that a commandment was annexed to each reference to the ancient law, and that each verse of the commandment had its own significance and could not be turned aside, and I was sure that would prove to be the fact here also. The last words that we repeated in the Gospel according to St. Luke say that, as God makes no distinction between men, but pours down his blessing upon all, so should we be like our Father in heaven, and make no distinction between men, 
not acting as the heathen do, but loving all men and doing good to all. These words were very clear. They seemed to me an explanation and commendation to some clearly defined precept. But what that precept precisely was, I could not for a long time make out. Love one's enemy. That was impossible. It was one of those beautiful utterances that cannot be considered otherwise than as presenting an unattainable moral ideal. It was either too much, or it meant nothing. We may avoid wronging our enemy, but to love him is impossible. Christ cannot have commanded what we cannot fulfill. Moreover, the very first words in reference to the ancient law, it has been said, hate your enemy, were dubious. In the preceding passages Christ quotes the exact authentic words of the Mosaic law, but in this one he cites words that were never used. He seems to knowingly make a false statement about the ancient law. The various commentaries on the gospel which I consulted helped me no more than they had done in my former doubts. All commentators acknowledge that the words, hate your enemy, do not stand in the Mosaic law, but by none of them is there any explanation of the incorrect quotation given. They tell us that it is hard to love one's enemies, the wicked, and, commenting on Christ's words, they add that, though a man cannot love his enemy, yet he may neither wish him evil nor actually wrong or injure him. It is persistently instilled into us that it is our obligation and duty to denounce evildoers, that is, to oppose our enemy, and the various steps are mentioned by which this virtue may be attained, and thus, according to the interpretation given by the Church, the final conclusion is that Christ, without any ostensible reason, quotes the words of the Mosaic law incorrectly, and has uttered many beautiful sayings that are, in themselves, useless and impracticable. It seemed to me that this could not be a true statement of the case. I felt sure that there was as clear and definite a sense in these words as I had found in the first four commandments. In order to comprehend the real meaning of the text, I endeavoured, first of all, to take in the sense of the incorrect reference to the Mosaic law. You have been told, hate your enemy. It is not without some distinct purpose that, before giving each of his own precepts, Christ quotes the words of the old law, you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, etc., and places his doctrine in opposition to them. Now, if we do not comprehend what meaning Christ attached to the words he quotes, neither can we comprehend the duty that he enjoins. It seemed to me that the first point it was necessary to make out was for what purpose Christ had cited words that are not found in the Mosaic law. Here we find two precepts set in opposition to each other. You have been told, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. It is obvious that the basis of the new commandment must be the very difference between these two precepts of the ancient law. In order to see the distinction more clearly, I asked myself, what do the words neighbour and enemy mean in the language of the gospel? 
and on consulting the dictionary and other passages of the Bible, I found that the word neighbor in the Hebrew language always signifies a Hebrew. In the gospel, a similar definition of the word neighbor is given in the parable of the Good Samaritan. According to the Hebrew lawyer's question, Who is my neighbor? A Samaritan could not be his neighbor. The same definition of the word neighbor is given in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, verse 27. The word neighbor, as used in the gospel, signifies a fellow countryman, one who belongs to the same nation. And I hence concluded that the antithesis used by Christ in this passage, when quoting the words of the law, you have been told you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, places a fellow countryman in opposition to a stranger. I then asked myself what the word enemy meant according to the Hebrews. It is almost always used in the gospel in the sense not of a private but a common enemy, a national enemy. Luke chapter 1 verse 71, Matthew 22 verse 44, Mark 12 verse 36, Luke 20 verse 43, and elsewhere. The use of the word enemy in the singular number in the text, hate your enemy, made it clear to me that the words referred to a national enemy. The singular expresses an enemy taken in a collective sense. In the Old Testament, the word enemy, when used in the singular, always implies a national enemy. No sooner did I comprehend this than my difficulty in understanding how it was that Christ, who always quoted the original words of the law, in this instance inserts the words, You have been told you shall hate your enemy, which are not in the Mosaic law, was solved. To remove all doubts as to the meaning of the passage, we have only to take the word neighbor as meaning a fellow countryman. Christ speaks of the Mosaic regulations concerning a national enemy. He combines in the single expression, to hate, to wrong an enemy, all the various precepts dispersed through the scriptures by which the Hebrews are enjoined to oppress, kill, and destroy other nations. And he says, You have been told that you shall love your own people and hate the enemies of your nation. But I say to you that you love all without distinction of their nationality. And no sooner had I understood this than the second and chief difficulty, that is, how the words love your enemies were to be understood, was removed. It is impossible to love our personal enemies, but we can love men of another nation as we do those of our own people. I saw clearly that by the words, you have heard that it has been said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, Christ asserts that all men are accustomed to consider their fellow countrymen as their neighbors, and men of other nations as their enemies, and this he forbids our doing. He says that, according to the law of Moses, a distinction was made between him who was a Hebrew and him who was not, but was considered as a national enemy, and then he commands that no such distinction should be made between them. Indeed, in the Gospels according to St. Matthew and St. Luke, we find that, immediately after this precept, he says that all are equal before God, 
that the same sun shines on all, and that the same rain falls upon all. God makes no distinction between men, and does equal good to all. Ought not men to do likewise, without recognizing distinctions of nationality? Thus I again found ample confirmation of the simple and practicable sense of Christ's words. Instead of an indistinct and indefinite philosophy, I discovered a clear, definite precept, which all have it within their power to fulfill, to make no distinction between one's own and other nations, and so to avoid the natural results of these distinctions, such as being at enmity with other nations, going to war, taking part in war, arming for war, etc., and to treat all men, whatever nation they belong to, as we do our fellow countrymen, was the requirement of Christ. All this was so simple and so clear that I was surprised I had not understood it at once. The hindrance in my way was the same that had prevented my comprehending the prohibition of courts of law and oaths. It is difficult to conceive that the very courts of law, which are inaugurated with Christian prayer and consecrated by those who regard themselves as the fulfillers of Christ's law, are incompatible with the Christian faith, and are in direct opposition to Christ's doctrine. Nor is it easier to conceive that the oath of allegiance, which all men are made to take by the keepers of Christ's law, is expressly forbidden by that very law. And it is hardest of all to conceive that, to uphold what is considered not only as necessary and natural, but even grand and glorious, as love of one's native land, its defence, its aggrandizement, war against an enemy, and so on, is not only sinning against the law of Christ, but even abjuring it. We have become so estranged from the doctrine of Christ that this very estrangement is now the chief obstacle to our understanding it. We have turned a deaf ear to his words, and forgotten all he taught us of the life we are to lead. How that we should not kill, not even bear malice against a fellow-creature, that we should never defend ourselves, but turn our cheeks to be struck, that we should love our neighbour, etc. We have grown so used to calling the men who devote their lives to murder a Christ-loving army, who put up prayers to Christ for victory over the enemy, whose pride and glory are in murder, and who have raised the symbol of that murder, the sword, into something almost sacred, so that he who is deprived of that symbol is considered as having been disgraced. We have grown so used to all this, I repeat, that it now appears to us that Christ did not forbid war, and that, if he had intended to do so, he would have expressed his meaning more clearly. We forget that Christ could never have thought it possible that men who believe in his doctrine of humility, love, and universal brotherhood, would calmly and consciously institute the murder of their brethren. Christ cannot have supposed it possible, and therefore he could no more have forbidden a Christian to make war than could a father, while admonishing his son to live honestly, without injuring or defrauding others, exhort him not to cut men's throats on the high road. 
Not one of the apostles, not one of Christ's disciples, could have supposed it necessary to forbid a Christian's committing murder, which is misnamed war. See what Oregon says in his answer to Celsus, chapter 63. Quote, Celsus exhorts you to help the sovereign with all your strength, to take part in his duties, to take up arms for him, to serve under his banner, if necessary to lead out his army to battle. Moreover, we may say, in answer to those who, being ignorant of our faith, require of us the murder of men, that even their high priests do not soil their hands in order that their God may accept their sacrifice. No more do we. Unquote. And, concluding by the explanation that Christians do more good by their peaceful lives than soldiers do, Oregon says, quote, Thus we fight better than any for the safety of our sovereign. We do not, it is true, serve under his banners, and we should not, even were he to force us to do so. Unquote. It was thus that the first Christians regarded war, and thus their teacher spoke when addressing the great men of this world, at the time when hundreds and thousands of martyrs were perishing for the Christian faith. But in our times the question whether a Christian ought to take part in war never seems to occur to any. Youths brought up according to the church law, which is called the Christian law, go every autumn, at fixed periods, to the conscription halls, and, with the assistance of their spiritual pastors, there renounce the law of Christ. A short time ago a peasant refused to enter the military service, grounding his refusal on the words of the gospel. The clergy all tried to persuade the man that his view of the matter was erroneous, and as the peasant still believed in Christ's words and not in theirs, he was cast into prison and kept there until he denied Christ. And this takes place although we, Christians, received eighteen hundred years ago a perfectly clear and definite commandment from our God, which said, Never consider men of another nation as your enemies, Look upon all men as brethren, and behave toward all men as you do towards your fellow countrymen. Therefore you shall not kill those whom you call your enemies. Love all, and do good to all. And when I had understood these simple, definite commandments, which admit of no other interpretation, I asked myself, what would the world be if all Christians believed that these commandments must be fulfilled in order to attain happiness, instead of treating them only as commandments that must be sung or read in churches in order that we may find favour in the eyes of God? What would the world be if people did but as firmly believe in the obligatory character of these commandments as they now do in the necessity of daily prayer? of attending public worship every Sunday, of fasting on Fridays and receiving communion every year, what would the world be if all men did but as firmly believe in these commandments as they do in the prescribed rules of the church? And I pictured to myself men and women in Christian society living up to these commandments and instilling the same into new generations, ourselves and our children no longer taught, both by word and deed, 
that man must maintain his own dignity, must defend his own rights, which cannot be done without humbling or offending others, but, instead, taught that no man has any rights, that none can be superior or inferior to another, that only he who tries to rise above all others is lower and more degraded than others, that there is no feeling more debasing for a man to cherish than that of anger against another, that the seeming insignificance or foolishness of a man can never justify either anger or enmity. Instead of our present social adjustments, from the show-glasses of shops to theatres, novels and millinery, whose tendency is but to sensuality, I pictured to myself that we and our children were taught by word and deed that the pleasures of sensual books, theatres and balls was the basest kind of pleasure, that every action whose aim was the embellishing or showing off of our persons was base and disgusting. Instead of our present social adjustments, by which it is considered necessary, and even in a sense right, that a young man should sow his wild oats before marriage, instead of a life in which separation between husband and wife is regarded as an ordinary thing, instead of the acknowledged necessity for the existence of a class of women who serve to pamper depravity, instead of the permission and authorization of divorce, I pictured to myself that we were taught, both by precept and by example, that a single unmarried state for a man in all his virility was an anomaly and a shame, that a man's leaving the woman he was united to, or taking another in her place, was not only as unnatural a proceeding as incest, but a cruel and inhuman deed. Instead of our lives being based upon violence, instead of each of us being either chastened himself or chastising others from childhood to old age, I pictured to myself that we were taught, both by precept and by example, that vengeance is but a base instinct, that violence is not only shameful, but deprives man of his true happiness, that the proper joys of life are only those that need no violence to protect them, that it is not he who despoils others, or keeps what is his own out of the hands of others, and makes others serve him, who is the most deserving of respect, but rather he who gives most, and who helps others most. Instead of considering it very right and lawful that each man should take an oath, and thus give away the most precious of his possessions, his whole life, into the keeping of another, I pictured to myself that we were taught to regard the intelligent will of a man as that holiest of holies which no man can ever give away, and that to promise anything with an oath is to renounce one's own rational self, and is an outrage against all that is most holy in man. I pictured to myself that instead of the enmity toward other nations that is instilled into us under a semblance of patriotism, Instead of the praise of murder or war which we, from our childhood, look upon as a glorious thing, there was instilled unto us the dread and scorn of all those diplomatic or military institutions that serve to disunite men, 
that to admit the existence of states, laws, frontiers, countries, etc., is but a proof of the most brutal ignorance, that to go to war, that is to kill men who are complete strangers to us, without any reason, is the most horrid crime, of which only a lost and depraved man, degraded to the rank of a wild beast, is capable. I pictured to myself that all men believed in this, and I asked myself, what would the world be then? Formerly I had more than once asked myself what the fulfilment of the doctrine of Christ, as I then understood it, would lead to, and the involuntary answer had been, to nothing at all. We shall all go on praying, receiving the holy sacrament, believing in our redemption and salvation, in the redemption and salvation of the whole world through Christ, and still this salvation will not be brought about by ourselves, but Christ will come again in his appointed time to judge the living and the dead, and then the kingdom of God will be established on earth, independently of the life that we have led. But the doctrine of Christ, as I now understood it, has another signification, the establishing of the kingdom of God on earth depends upon us. The fulfilment of Christ's doctrine, as expressed in the five commandments, establishes this kingdom of God. The kingdom of God on earth is peace among all men. Peace among men is the highest earthly bliss that man can attain. It was thus that the Hebrew prophets pictured the kingdom of God to themselves and it is thus that each human heart ever has and ever will picture it. The substance of the entire doctrine of Christ is the establishing of the kingdom of God on earth, and that brings peace to all men. In the Sermon on the Mount, in his conversation with Nicodemus, in the mission he gave to the disciples, in all his teachings he speaks of what causes division among men, and prevents their living in peace and entering the kingdom of God. All Christ's parables are definitions of the kingdom of God. They all seek to instill into us that it is only by loving our brethren and being at peace with them that we can enter the kingdom. John the Baptist, the precursor of Christ, says that the kingdom of God is at hand and that Jesus Christ will give it to the world. Christ says that he brings peace on earth. John chapter 14 verse 27 Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I give it to you, not as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. These five commandments of Christ do indeed give peace to men. The tendency of all the five commandments is to procure peace among men. Let men but believe in the doctrine of Christ and obey it, and there will be peace on earth, not the peace established by man, which is fleeting and transitory, but general, inviolable, eternal peace. The first commandment says, Be at peace with all men, and do not consider any man as worthless or foolish. Matthew 5 verse 22 if peace has been destroyed, use your utmost endeavours to re-establish it. 
The service of God is the annihilation of all enmity. Matthew 5, verses 23 to 24. Let the least disagreement be followed by immediate reconciliation, lest you swerve from the true life. This commandment includes all in itself. But Christ foresees the temptations of the world that destroy peace among men, and gives a second commandment against the seductions of sexual relations that destroy peace. Do not consider carnal beauty to lust after it. Avoid the temptation. Matthew 5, verses 28 and 30. Let each man have one wife, and each woman one husband, and let them never leave each other, under any pretext whatever. Matthew 5, verse 23. Another temptation is the taking of oaths, for it leads men into sin. Know therefore that to do so is to sin, and consequently never make any vow. Matthew 5, verses 34 and 35. The third temptation is to vengeance, which is called human justice. Never take vengeance on any man, nor seek to excuse yourself by saying you have received injury at the hands of another. Bear the wrong done to you, and do not return evil for evil. Matthew 5, verses 38 and 42. The fourth temptation arises from the distinction made between nations, the enmity between races and states. Know that all men are brethren, and sons of the same God, and never destroy peace in the name of national interests. Matthew 5, verses 43 and 48. Let men leave but one of these commandments unfulfilled, and peace will be destroyed. Let men fulfill all these commandments, and the kingdom of peace will be established on earth. These commandments exclude all evil from the relationships of men. The fulfillment of Christ's commandments will make the lives of men such as each human heart seeks and longs for. All men will be brethren, each will be at peace with the other, and each will be free to enjoy all the blessings of this world during the term of life allotted to him by God. Men will turn their swords into ploughshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And on earth will be established the kingdom of God, the kingdom of peace that was promised by the prophets, which drew nearer with John the Baptist, and which Christ announced in the words of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the broken-hearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The simple and clear commandments of peace given by Christ, by which all causes of dissension are foreseen and turned aside, reveal the kingdom of God on earth to men. Thus Christ is truly the Messiah. End of chapter 6